Hey, so great to have Tracy on board and really different point of view coming from the library service, I guess. Uh, libraries, maybe like reading, have gone through a bit of uh, a lack of call over the last 20 or so years. Yeah. Were you, were you, a you, you used to go to the library? Uh, yeah, I did. What I've got fond memories of um, being taken, I suppose, and that's probably the, one of the key arguments or key points that's come out of that discussion. Uh, if they don't have that support, ongoing support, that drive at home to, to get their... To the library and get a book out then they sort of fall away and i do remember mum was always an avid reader massive stephen king fan so mum uh, was yeah yeah always took me along to when i was younger to the library and then i eventually started reading whatever she was reading so they took you to see misery and cujo and <laughs> kind of christine all reflected, those reflected a lot of my life <laughs> growing up in intensely all, the, all those child friendly films cujo yeah carrie yeah good pet <laughs> Uh, I remember what about my, yourself? Yeah, I remember my first library book. Your first, first you remember library, it? I remember. I suppose I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I went to the Fielding Library. I remember going with my mum, and the book I got was about Sitting Bull. You know Sitting Bull? Yes, yes. Who was it? It was a um, Sioux Chief. Correct. Sioux Chief who um, routed Colonel Custer. Yes. And uh, yeah. Diced him up, well, they toasted him up. But uh, yeah, I vividly remember going to the library getting that book. Oh, no, that's a good memory. How old were you then? Um, well, it must have been about five. Mate, that's impressive. Yeah, that's a pretty heavy text as a five-year-old. Oh, it was a, it was a kids. Yeah, it was a short, small. It was a cassette. <laughs> <laughs> you put it in. <laughs> Just play. Put it in your Sony. You... Ding. Turn the page. That <laughs> no, was that no, was a little kids kids book, obviously. Oh right, yeah. It was about sitting book. Yeah, yeah. nice. I think his happy or what they have over his hunker popper. I still remember it from yeah, right from when I had that as I was young. Yeah, and so your parents were always avid readers. Yeah, yeah, lots of books at home. So I guess is that the 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 precursor, the necessary element? Because we're both coming from families with books in the house and the reading. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I was thinking though when we were talking with Tracy, one thing that stuck with me is now. Um, we talk about a decline in reading, but I wonder if now there is, uh, it's, you can't escape if you're not, that sounds really bad, I know, it's maybe not the right term, <laughs> but data tracking is so intense, you pick up who can't, who can or can't read, Yeah, and the urgency that you need to be able to read is pretty, um, pretty intense, whereas maybe not in our time, but maybe our parents' time, you could very easily leave school, work, Without necessarily having to yeah. read, yeah. Now you can't. I mean, you look at we both work in a secondary school. Uh, kids go on various trades and um, work schemes, and man, you've got to reading's essential every step of the way. Yeah, regardless of what they're sitting yeah. or what they're doing. So there was definitely an era where you didn't have to know how to read to get opportunities. Yeah, we're and we're also growing civilization distractions, right? Oh, yes, man. Regardless, wherever that is a, you that go. Is, a song is that a song lyric? Shall we? Is that your own? <laughs> that, that is, that is, um, that's okay. I can't remember what I said. Yeah. Write it oh, down next Tracy time. Tracy had those two she bought in, and that was impressive. And yes. You just drop in growing a civilization of distraction. Yes. It okay. just rolled off the tongue. I think you prepared that. Did you no, prepare? it was this um, this Montes West Coast uh, <laughs> hazing. Beautiful. Uh, back to the topic. Um, a cult, A civilization of distraction. Yeah, well, you know, like uh, back when we, there wasn't a lot to do when we were growing up. No. Mate, I spent a lot of time walking through mangroves, plucking out um, Cody gum that had washed down the river. 
Mm. I don't see a lot of yous doing that these days. So, but then also read books. Are you referring to the time you spent at Waikato University? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if you're familiar with Waikato. There's not a lot of mangroves. I'm sure they had And it wasn't a euphemism or a metaphor. <laughs> Despite popular belief, I'm sure that university has a library. <laughs> I think it's just well, a... uh, if we, although if we, let's try and not be too fuddy-duddy sounding here. Internet, gaming, social media. Yeah. I mean, dial it back to when you were young in the 2000s, when I was there in the 90s slash 80s. <laughs> um, you know, you joke about cassettes, but wasn't just the old radio and tape deck another distraction? Yeah. Were movies in the 70s or television another distraction? See your master system coming out. Yeah, Nintendo, like yeah. Atari 2600, another distraction. Structure. So so really, if we try and blame a lot on social media, okay, for example, yeah. is that actually just the way... Uh, life has been going forever, that there's always a distraction. Yeah, yeah. Mate, well, I don't know. Like we had that little study one in this afternoon, and I'm sitting with students. they got their phones on the desk. They're not looking at them. They're, they're working on some work, but they're still binging and the light's flashing consistently throughout. Mm. So I guess we didn't have the same desire or call uh, to our device. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know. I distinctly recall, as I'm sure you do as well, Feeling stuck in the class, maths class, and just staring out the window. Man, salt's going on out there. <laughs> get There's a hill up there, and is that a plane in distance, man? Get, you know? Man, do you see what that wind is doing to that tree? <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah, yeah absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, we were always seeking distractions, I suppose, even back then. Or it's just the banter of your classmate or mm. drawing in a book or, or whatever. So then, I guess where we were going there is that there was just this. There are any number of reasons not to read. Yes. So let's try and shift our combo to, man, how do you get people reading? Instead of saying why they won't read, how do you get them reading? And let's maybe go to texts. Yeah. Have you got one in the last five minutes? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I mean, what? so one way, one thing we always talk about is what about texts that just grab students? So I mentioned when we talked with um, um, Tracy, yes. the the text I remember from the boy was Hunger Games. Yeah. And that was pre the movies, pre yep. Jennifer Lawrence, pre it being cool. This kid had obviously read it and it resonated with him. Maybe that's the wrong word because I'm sure he didn't live in a dystopian future where uh, young people are <laughs> ritually <laughs> sacrificed for the entertainment of others. But somehow this story stuck with him. Yeah. Yeah, I guess... Um... And like I spoke last time, the road to winter was always something that um, yes. I found worked really well. But it's something as simple as um, Hunt for Wilder People. You know, when that came out, it was a fresh uh, new cover to a traditional story. Well, not a traditional one, but an old school one. But that still had the power to capture the interest. And we took those um, that entire cohort of students to go watch the film. And all of a sudden, every single student in that, uh, in that year level was captured by that book. We also yeah. took class eeling and they cooked the eels on the side of the riverbank yes. and we spoke about the book and the fact that uh, all these things happen and, and that taps into you know a multitude of old, old texts where you know got young people out there um just enjoying our surroundings and then gaining some sustenance from it learn some skills yeah relating to that so that's about texts that young people can relate to it's something that they can physically can uh um copy i guess right Yep. Oh, I'm reading this cool book about going hunting. I'm going to give it a go. Do you know, and this is another one of my unproven facts. Oh, yes, I love this. Do you know um, the most popular music genre in America? I'm going to go country. 
I was going to go with country as well. Yes. And one of the, if you look at country songs, do you know a lot of country songs? No. Oh, well. Tell me That's for it. another time. But one thing you see in a lot of country music is it's really localised. Yes. Kentucky Rain. Yeah, right. Uh, songs about specific places. Yeah. Like I mentioned, Kentucky Rain and um, Tennessee, you know, Tennessee Whiskey, I know that's the name of the thing, but you hear all these places all the time. Yes. And so what that does is it really localises... A physical songs. location for them to buy into. Yeah. So this is... A, 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 the song's not about, well, you know... I think of uh, one of T-Pain's greatest song in love with a stripper. <laughs> you know, pretty generic sort of title could be anywhere. But when I hear Chris Stapleton, Chris Stapleton, because that's the name of a drink, um, uh, there's an old song, El Paso, or something like that. You hear all these places, yeah. and it takes you to a specific yes. place. Time and place that people can feel. Yeah. In a physical place. Yes. You know, we don't hear too many songs about, um, you know, well, Thames or fielding, mm. mainly because not too much rhymes with them. But <laughs> but you know what I mean? There's a localism in country music um, that is rare, possibly, in texts. So you think that that element's going to be a key driver for a resurgence of reading? The shift towards uh, uh, a localised aspect of our curriculum? I don't know about a text. resurgence, but I wonder if it is a... Um, I wonder if Life it's raft. an element... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if it's an element of localizing a story and grabbing, grabbing a story. Have you ever read Whale Rider? Yes. So that's a staunchly Ngāti story set yep. in Whangarau on the East Coast. Coast. And it's only, if you go to Whangarau, Paikia, uh, Tiko Tiko up on the whare, yep. It's that story is distinctly a Ngāti story from Whangarau. And then maybe there's not too many stories like that, I guess, where it's exactly set in this place. Now, where I'm going with that is that by localising it, that maybe that's something that grabs people. I guess it's a bit of both, eh? It's got the opportunity to grab some people, but if people don't know that place, it also has the potential to push push people away. I don't actually know where this is. I don't really care. So or, I guess that's the or, beauty of describing or, a location yeah. without telling us where it is, right? Or it's it's vivid and rich, maybe, because it yeah, is right. such yeah. a distinct place. It takes us on a journey. Um, as opposed to uh, Galaxy, long time ago, I mean, Galaxy Far, Far Away, for example. Yes. Stories that could be anywhere. Yeah. Well, this, um, well, hopefully, we um, interview this author in, in the coming weeks. But oh, we want to get to the latest, few authors, eh? But, this um, latest novel I've read, watched. Yep. Opening uh, scene is, is downtown Wellington. And the first sort of couple of chapters, you know, describes in detail locations around Wellington. So for those down in the capital, Tap into it. Oh, I've been there. Oh, I can visualise exactly what's going on because I know what this looks like. Yeah, another um, uh, New Zealand author, Fiti Hiriaka. Yes. Uh, her book, Legacy, exact same thing. It opens in downtown Wellington. Yep. Uh, describes it vividly and then goes through to, I think, Mardi in Egypt. Yes. In very yes. distinct yep. locations. Yep. So I guess there's a group. What are we, what's, our, what's my point there? I guess it's localising, but also that. Maybe that realism that comes with it. These are these are stories happening in real places. Yeah, I think uh, like one of your key things as a teacher though is to try and find that commonality or that that location within a novel, regardless. Something that the kids can connect to, and maybe that's one of those little lead up activities. You know, tapping into the prior knowledge, find a particular moment in time in the text or a location. Oh, you guys been here? What does this look like? Da 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 da. Oh, well, funny enough, these characters. Jump into this. Yeah. I wonder um, I wonder here if it's a good point to then 
if we connect this to, um, I don't know if Mataranga Māori is the right term here, but definitely Te Ao Māori, mm-hmm. that ability to connect by putting a story in a certain location or area and even possibly a location in time. So I mentioned the Fiti Heriaka one. Yes. Um, I don't want to give any spoilers there, but it's always a bad sign when you say but spoilers. <laughs> a setting in that a setting in that novel is there's uh, an element of back to the future. Well, you've done more spoiling than I was about. <laughs> <laughs> but a setting in that novel is within the first Maori contingent who are in World War One. It's mm. a really distinct time and place and people. Yeah. And, and you think of that, for example. It's a massive part of, of a lot of Māori whānau history, uh, that engagement through different world wars. So again, that's an example, I think, of a really localised story. You mentioned whale rider, Whangarā, Ngāti Pro, again, a real a local story, but also one that really connects to te ao Māori. Mm, mm. So those are examples, I guess, of how a novel can uh, definitely perhaps grab Māori or use that, um, that type of setting don't know if I've got that term right setting, but to possibly try and engage Māori readers. Yeah, yeah. And then you also uh, don't want to, I guess, fall into the trap of saying, oh, well, this is a Māori story from here, so <laughs> all Māori from Gizzi will like this story. Um, you mentioned Tihima Baker. Yeah. And that, no, you've, you've been reading, that's like a science fiction. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's a real... Yeah, dystopic sort of, uh, yeah, fictional and, text. And the winter, was it? The road to winter? Road to winter. Again, the Australian dystopian yep. future. So it's not to try and, I guess that's, you run the risk of, oh, here's a story, multi kids will like it. Yeah. I think if that's your stance, then you're in the wrong career. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You're battling. Yeah. You're battling. Um, what is it maybe, what are the ingredients of a really engaging text? We don't want to typecast readers. Um, but maybe what are those elements that we that perhaps are really popular with younger readers? I think I like. Uh, I mean, the one thing that stands out to me is if you if we're trying to get these kids away from distraction to some point and, yep. and getting them stuck into a text, we've got to create that distraction. Us just standing there going, "Hey, you should read this because I'm a reader. I love reading." That's probably not enough. Um, so, what is it that you can do uh, that's going to tap into that that excitement? I don't know what that looks like. We spoke to well, Tracy about you know this national database of little Kickstarter reading activities. At our um, where we're at, it starts from year seven and eight, and they have some awesome stuff around a book week. Yes, students and staff dress up as, as their favourite book characters or book characters, and you get some really cool stuff, you know. Um, but I think it gets us back to this stage where high school, year 9 and 10, third and fourth form for the old schoolers out there, mm. um, that idea of what's cool and what's not still becomes a... They're not going to dress up as Tom Sawyer <laughs> <laughs> or Ricky Baker or... <laughs> Or the greases and the socias, you know what I mean? So 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 how do you engage teenagers? Let's say you've got an awesome text. Yes. No doubt, man. You are sitting on the winner there. Yeah. Um, hey, looking at your at the top of your reading list, you've got watched by Tia Mabaker, 
man, you've got that ready to go. You know it. It rocks. You know it's a story. Kids are going to love it. You've got your, your class full of cool teenagers. What are you going to do? Mate. I'm, I'm the cool teenager. Let's, uh, let me try and uh, role play that. Hey, not too hard to do, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> let me try and role play that. Man, I don't care who wrote that book or what it's about. I'm too cool to start reading. Yeah, I'd rather just play on my phone. I got ticky tocky. Ticky tocky. Yeah. Ticky tocky. Well, mate, if that's the call, then I just chuck them onto that book top. Nice. Good. Hey. Good. Oh, well, let's book see top. what these guys recommend. You're into social media? And this is, thank you, Tracy, for putting us onto this because I didn't have a clue. I personally don't have top tick on my phone. Do you? Nah. Nah. So, no, I don't have TikTok, but sometimes I've got Facebook. Yes. And a lot, I, I say that like it's a badge of honor. Apparently, all the old people <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> I'm still rolling Bebo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm on Facebook now. So are a billion other people, fella. Well done. Good um, chat. <laughs> but I know on, on Facebook, though, you can still get top top videos. Yep. <laughs> You can still get TikTok videos. Yeah, they come through. So, oh, yeah. so quite often I'll watch one and um and, and it'll take me to TikTok to play the video. So maybe um maybe another way to do it. I've found this cool novel. Maybe yep. the kids don't want to listen to me promote it. Maybe I actively find its endorsement by someone who is what is it? What's the alternative of saying cool? Well, I'm I, an influencer. An influencer. An influencer with a, with a heap of followers. Followers. Believers. Yeah, you're right. Because so why don't some... we find an influencer who, who supports the text? I don't know. Do you, do you, do you create an influencer? Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's what's missing, Tracy. Maybe an influencer for New Zealand text for kids. Is there? Do you think, and she sort of said how she gets any guests who would come in get them to lead off with what are they reading. Yes. Is there an element where, because you're the teacher, uh, whatever you're saying, kids will basically do the opposite too. Or Yeah, that's the right. You're telling them, man, you got to read, you got to love this. Yeah, they're not really going to... You're not the influencer for them. I'd say there's definitely days where a kid has decided before they've even stepped through your door what they want to listen to, to some extent. And that can be dependent on... 3,000 things that have happened during the day or the night before, right? Yep. And so we've got a limited opportunity to switch that around. Um, and, and but we've also got the power to bring in other means to do so. And if that is using someone else's voice to push a concept or an idea that we value, but it's just a different way of saying it or a different voice and pre uh, presenting it, then why not use it? I don't know. We don't know if this works. We're just spouting ideas here, but... One thing we wanted to do with this podcast, and I don't mean this episode, but this uh, season, is look around that it's refresh. It's a long that's season. <laughs> and some long chat. <laughs> but we wanted to look around uh, Mataranga Māori and that dimension within English. So uh, we also said pretty early on, man, it's not just about text selection, but I think if we look here at text selection, mm. because Tracy's background in the library, it's probably a good time to talk about text selection. So what um, are some texts you've come across? Maybe I've come across that people could maybe add to their repertoire or not. Uh, yeah, right. So there's a, quite a cool text called Slice of Heaven written by um, a fellow, Des O'Leary. He's actually local down here. I actually really enjoyed that because it's got um, – it's set in South Auckland, 
Um, but the characters are cosmopolitan. You've got a whole mix of different cultures who play pivotal roles. So there's not just one supporting one or one carrying the other or, or whatever. It's sort of like a cool combination of these different stories that are told through these different characters. But um, certainly I bought into it and um, I'm looking forward to giving that a nudge. Um, you mentioned uh, Fitzihiriaka before. Bugs? Yep. Really love Bugs. Um, I'm not sure whether the setting is actually expressed um, explicitly, but coming from a small town where you do have... Uh, you oh, got these pockets of poverty. It's not a rich location. Um, you got factories that have closed down. Some unemployment that's sort of growing. You know, you can see yep. a whole range of life. And you can, and so coming from a town like that, I know there's Aotearoa's, you know, full of them, but I could definitely buy into that setting via that. Another one I know, um, again, someone else we hope you can talk to is Steph Matuku. So kia ora, Steph, kia ora, Steph. Yes. yes. But she's written a few, uh, Falling into Rarohinga and um, also Flight of the Fantail. She's done a yep. few others as well. Yes. And Flight of the Fantail, what's really cool in there, it's just um, starts off teenagers, all these cool kids we're talking about on a school bus, and something happens. So yeah. straight away you got this group of young Māori, bang, and something happens to change it up. So again, that's another example of a text. And we also mentioned um, Porangi Boy, yes. now recorded with Tracy, Yep. by... Um, Shiloh Kino. Shiloh Kino, thank you. Um, kia ora Shiloh, aroha mai. Um, set up north, and you mentioned those sort of, like it's around um, Ngafa, I think. Yes. Eh? So again, yeah. a real localised story. It's not actually said though in the novel. Ngafa, the lo actual oh, location, okay. physical location. So I guess that's the beauty of it could be in your backyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To some yeah. extent. So I guess a common thread there is you've got young protagonists, young Māori protagonists yep. Yep. each time. Yeah. Also, there's one that not maybe it's not aimed at uh, junior readers, but it's Car White by Monty Suter for a time such as this. Perfect. And awesome, awesome. Uh, Some of the greatest action. chapters I've ever read. Awesome action there. Um, but again, distinctly a very distinct story set in a very unique place of Aotearoa to a very unique. Yeah. Um, well, to a very specific. Um, and people there. But in saying that, like um, you mentioned before, uh, Steph Matuku's book, uh, Falling into Rarohinga. So I just finished that. And Tracy uh, definitely alluded to the fact that the, the style in which it's written, a text, can prove to be more uh, of a accessibility, I guess, than how we promote it. And so with that novel, you've got these quite short chapters uh, that are through the two twins' perspective. Two twins. The twins' perspective, both of them, both of them. <laughs> but and the, and the chapters are short. The sentence structure is quite simple, but the ideas are, have got depth. But it's a real page turn because it's not like, oh, when's this chapter going to end? It's like bang, bang, done. Next perspective. You got your yeah, yeah. I think you're spot on there because it, there's also when we talk about young people, it doesn't matter what it's about. It's still got to engage them, and if it's not accessible, and you're going to have a wide spectrum of readers. If something is short and punchy style, we'll grab some readers and maybe uh, longer prose or something, for example, might, might put some off. So yeah. it's got to be accessible as well. Yeah, and I think something like that, um, Kawai, you know, it, it's, a, it's a good novel 
And but if I took that to my year nine class and I've got, you know, it's good year nine class, but I've got some some um, students in there that probably aren't that interested in reading at all. But if I just started with probably the, the number one chapter for me is that initial battlefield. Mm. If I just started with that, I can almost guarantee I'll put my money on it that every kid in that class now wants to read that novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. so maybe with these some of these texts, it's not about starting at the start. Maybe it's about picking the most engaging paragraph that you've come across. Start with that. Lead with the lead with the bat. What's your reading voice like? If I'm sitting in your class, I'm that student, year 10. Oh, great for a nap. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I like that road to winter. I, I read to the, the students and then I yeah. always give them the opportunity to um, to have a go. Same with when I first began reading The Hunt for Little People, I had that real mischief year 10 class, probably curriculum level. Oh, they were low, those boys. But they yeah. loved being read to. Yeah, same. They same loved the fact across. that they could yep. sit. They weren't active in their reading, and I'm putting quotation marks or whatever you call them. But they were still engaged in the novel yeah. and what was being read to them. And in fact, it was actually so surprising. A couple of thumbs were in mouths. Yeah. <laughs> exact same for me exact same for me yep. loved the story um loved yeah it was probably i was probably a battling uh reading voice to them but loved mm. them loved them. so yeah so yeah i guess you're, you're reading to them that yeah, they, they love that uh well a lot of readers will love that used to give some of the option to read ahead yeah have your guns they can read ahead oh yeah some of the book would stay closed but they'll just listen yeah yeah that's yeah it's a that, difficult yeah. balance because hey, you don't want to be painful for those, yeah, that's right. For those students who maybe they're not avid readers, but they read well. And you don't want to be pained. Man, it's a grind. Oh, you know, you get some big chapters. Oh, geez, yeah. It can be tough. Yeah. Better to stay in character. Yeah. But I guess that's where you know your students, you know your time frame, how long you reckon you've got doing some, some what would you call it, reading to, reading yeah. out loud. There's another author, uh, forgive me, I don't mind if I get this wrong, Marianne Scott. We've got a few of them, the Tomo, uh, Sparrow, um, Sticking Pigs, I think it's called. Um, but their stories, well, uh, the pig hunting one, young fellow who's looking for a father figure, uncle takes him um, out pig hunting and, and the whole story unfolds from that. Sparrow, same, similar sort of story, really. Like uh, It's a South African family that moves to Aotearoa. He doesn't know anything about the ocean, but gets involved with a friend in spearfishing. And um, the Tomo is about uh, a young fellow heading out into a farm and being taken through the ropes on on farming. And there's all elements of resilience and all sorts of things. But it's almost like a the same story written with different contexts, but I enjoyed all of them. Uh, teenage Luke McFarlane. Uh, heaven forbid we go too deep in this. <laughs> when teenage Luke McFarlane is not doing other things, what is the book? <laughs> That's uh, done it for teenage Luke McFarlane in Thames. In Thames. In Thames or oh. Thames. It had to be Stephen King. Stephen King? Yeah. And oh, I still, let me guess which one. I'll still tap into a few of them. Um, was it Misery? <laughs> <laughs> Just think that Thames connection there. There's something about being tied up and having my, <laughs> tied up and having my ankles broken really <laughs> stood out to me. What was it? I think I started with a lot of, um, I think it was Nightmares and Dreamscapes, a lot of short stories that were really quirky. And that's sort of a follow-on from um, Paul Jennings oh, yeah. Goosebumps and, and Goosebumps. They were the, like, yeah. when I was at, uh, quite a young fella. 
and sort of progressed um, into that Stephen King, which is ultimately weird because I'm not really into supernatural stuff. Yeah. But I guess it was just the way he wrote about it that was like, oh, yeah, I kind of, I can kind of see that happening. I'm not a believer, but I can see it happening. Well, yes, a horror story. Uh, a horror story, I guess, keeps you, you know, I guess you're ramping up the end of each chapter and it's kind yeah, of yeah. creating that. To do a horror story, you've got to probably build that tension and that sort of emotion maybe where you're, you're trying to build some fear. So mm, mm. I can see why that would appeal. Did, um, oh, before I tell you, Mike, oh, yeah, okay, fun sorry. fact about Stephen King, he had <clears throat> a, an alter ego, Richard Beckman, I think. Okay. You know this? You know the story? Richard Beckman? No, I don't think so. And apologies to all our American listeners. I might be mispronouncing uh, Beckman. It's spelt B-A-C-H. Oh, oh yes, now. So maybe that. it's Bachman. Or Batchman. Oh, Stefan Batchman. Stefan Batchman. <laughs> Stefan Batchman. Now it makes anyway, more sense. Um, where I'm going with this is... Um, he was a Michael was Jackson a, fan. No. <laughs> but I was a big Arnold Schwarzenegger fan. Okay. Uh, all the movies. Yes. Yeah, big fan. Mm. Uh, Predators is probably my number one. Really? But where I'm going with this is... Do you, you remember The Running Man? Yeah. Well, Stephen King wrote under the pseudonym of Richard Batchman... Wrote a short story, The Running Man. They got turned into the Arnold film. Oh, there we go. So he's more than just a horror writer. Yeah, well, there's a uh, one of his most recent ones, Billy Summers. There's a story about a, a sniper, which uh, I was like, well, that's all I'm impressed. Um, Shawshank Redemption. Mm. Shawshank Redemption was him, eh? It was called, yeah, it was one of his short stories. Yeah. Pretty sure it was. Okay. Shawshank Redemption, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank something um yeah novella by stephen king oh there we go google told me that so it must be true oh. and all of this says you probably knew that already but yeah um now the book that did it for me yes uh teenage uh petty jury running around fielding or walking around fielding <laughs> <laughs> rollerblading <laughs> <laughs> you were definitely rollerblading yep. and there would have been some punishable with my pen. streets <laughs> Like rough concrete, <laughs> worn away asphalt. Um, uh, yeah, the one for me was uh, I remember I got sick, got glandular fever, and mum brought me home a book, New Zealand book, Monday's Warriors. Monday's Warriors by Morris Shedbolt. Uh, Morris Shedbolt, famous New Zealand author, uh, Parker. And I mentioned that because it's a um, sort of set within the Taranaki Lambles. Yeah. And ultimately, I guess it's a mouldy. Well, no, it's it's set in a very distinct Maori setting. So, from a Pākehā author, that's a, it's a bit different. But it follows the story of Kimball Bent. You've heard of Kimball Bent? Yes, I've read the graphic novel. Oh, of course, you have. Easy read. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've read the Lots actual of pictures. <laughs> so, who was Kimball Bent? Um, yeah, bear with me. He was someone who skipped the Navy, the American Navy or British Navy. Yep. So he, what are they called? When you jump ship. Or deserter. A deserter. Yeah. He was a deserter who who sided with the yeah. Taranaki Iwi. Yeah, that's right. So um so Kimball Bent did exactly that and the Taranaki sort of alliance was led by T Tukawaru. Yes. And around if you're around um Hawara, there's a parasite there, Tingutu Timanu. And why that was famous is one of his strategies was he created this sort of bottleneck. Yes. Lured in the crown. The British soldiers, they weren't really British, were they? Some of them were, but I guess they were New Zealand. I digress. Well, they were all these parties. 
<laughs> and Maori soldiers. <laughs> and, and, yeah, yeah. They were. Uh, lured them in, yep. this bottleneck, and then they're up in the trees. Yes. And so he had a couple of good running battles against the Crown, against the British, and did well. So this story, Monday's Warriors, is from the perspective of Kimball Bent, the uh, American who sides with them. And he's sort of, um, a, I guess it's through his perspective we get to learn that story about Titoaru and those wars. Mm. So epic story. Again, um, why I mentioned that he's Parker, that's not to um, have a go at Parker's. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I guess it's aware that there's a distinctly Māori perspective of that story. And and you you sometimes risk maybe you're glorifying the drama, yeah, right. Or there's an exciting story in there that maybe isn't uh, the iwi authentic, yeah, that iwi story in there. However, uh, for um, year eleven or whatever I was, year ten, getting crook, man, I really enjoyed it, and it was epic in New Zealand history, and uh, yeah, really enjoyed it, and probably got me right into historical fiction now. So I still sort of like that. Yeah, that I enjoy bit. historical fiction. And that we talk about Kawai, that's another example, really, of historical fiction. Yeah, it's almost um, like a, um, who was it? It was a Bryce Courtney that wrote a lot of those that travelled through the uh, South African wars, Boer Wars, yeah, and yeah. began in Pirates, I think, and worked its way through different generations. Yep, yep. Um, Con Eagledon did a, one of Genghis Khan, yep. Julius Caesar. Yep. The Potato yep. Factory. and um, Yep, that's right. Who was that guy? I think it was the same one, Bryce Courtney, wasn't it? Oh, was it? Uh, <laughs> yes, Factory, Tom on Hawk. Tom on Hawk. Yep. And then there's another one. It was based in New Zealand Wars. Yeah, so, um, well, it was a good chat for this uh, podcast, Luke. I hope what we discussed was with Tracy, that's that rich resource she brings from the library, from the National Library. And underutilized, too. But I think she's actually looking for us to reach out as a, as a teaching community and and help guide what it is that they're trying to create. Well, one of our goals for the podcast as well was hopefully it's something really pragmatic for teachers. Yeah. What are they going to take away from it, right? So if nothing else, uh, ignore our rambling. Tracy is that connection with the National Library. What did she say? She's got half a million books yeah. on hand. On hand. And on their website, they've got these curated collections. So whatever you're looking for in terms of a theme or something, you've got an opportunity there. So we hope, uh, people, listeners, that that's something you get from this. And maybe again, our chat, hey, look, take or leave it. Uh, I'm a big fan of Arnold movies. Uh, Luke grew up in Thames. I'm sure we told we spoke up this on every other episode, but what's your favourite Arnold film? Favourite Arnold film? I mean, I, I, I enjoyed Predator. Yes. Predator is the best Arnold film. I think Predator really made it for me. Or then, yeah, Terminator. Oh, yep, yep. I'd probably go um, Predator, and then I think Conan, Conan the Barbarian, <laughs> number two. Conan? The Barbarian. You ever seen Conan? Yeah. When did you last see it? Oh, I must have been like 16. There we go. Adult Luke McFarlane. Yeah? Go and check out Conan the Barbarian. All right. Directed by Oliver... No, not, not Oliver Stone. Stone. <laughs> um, not Oliver Stone. It's another guy. Big Wednesday. Remember Big Wednesday? Love it. So what's that director's name? Well, anyway, that guy, you guys can Google it. Yeah, you're right. You can. Richard Millius. John yeah. Millius. John Millius. John Millius. Richard's brother. Director. John Millius. So John Millius. Fun fact about John Millius. He was at film school with Steven Spielberg, um, George Lucas. Wow, Lewis. what an era. Imagine being in the class of that. That's right. Era. And well, they were kind of this crew of young directors coming out of film school. 
So those three are pretty tight. And the story goes, they each uh, finished their studies. George Lucas, man, right, I've got this movie, you know, Star Wars, going to make this thing. Mm. Million to million to nothing odds that it's good, but hey, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Spielberg, right, Jaws, I've got this thing, man, he's got the shark. Man, it's going to, you know, yeah, I think it's going to hit. John Milius, yeah, I've um, got this one about surfing. And it's sort of this coming of age through surfing and Vietnam war hits and stuff. So they've each got these three epic film ideas. Far out. And and the story goes that of all of them, they say it was John Milius who was the the guy. Most talented. He was the guy coming through. He was the one to look out for. So what they did is they each gave each other a part of ownership of each of their films. Far out. Star Wars, rest is history. Yes. Jaws, rest is history. Big Wednesday, bombs massively. Tanks. And John Milius jokes that, well... He got a part of Star Wars and Jaws, and those, <laughs> and those guys got a part of Big Wednesday. But, I didn't realize it a tank. It's such a classic. Well, it's a classic now. Well, that's the thing, though. Um, so it came out, I think, late 70s, early 80s. But through the magic of VHS and video, yeah. Yeah. it became a cult classic. Yeah, right. And so it's actually become really big um, after the fact. Probably released too close to the war. Possibly. To, to gain that. Yeah, possibly. Maybe. Possibly, because, yeah, I mean, it's quality. Quality film. Yeah. Mm. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a film. Yeah, score by um, who did the score for that? Because it's got an epic score. Oh, they can Google that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although it's one of those things. John Milius is the director. Yeah. Jeez, who did the score for that? While you look that up, uh, we've got to remember that <laughs> Tracy. When you look at the website, National Libraries, it's services for schools. And so, if you're after any information around, Bezel, um, sorry, Bezel, <laughs> Bezel, 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 Bezel Basil Polidaris, so uh, another epic, um, does massive cinematic scores. <laughs> okay, so you can leave him with a little plug for <laughs> As well as Tracy, make sure that you got <laughs> the score to Big Wednesday. And the score is by Basil Polidaris. I think I could do a whole episode on top cult surf flicks. This might have to, I we'll have to do it for another time. What I, would you? I would. I hey, would. What would be your genre? My genre of choice. Like if you did one on surf films. Cult classic surf films. Okay, so what, what would I come in with? I would, would you come with? I would go with Golden Harvest slash Shaw Brothers Hong Kong martial arts films. Oh, okay. That'd be me. Okay. Yeah. Yep, and I'd start with probably the Ten Tigers of Shaolin. And I've probably got a top five ready to go. Teachers out there, get onto the National Library. You'll find curated collections of texts. And hey, look, there's a lot more to juggle other than just choosing good texts. But man, if you've got no idea... Jump on there and have a look, and it'll give you some idea. Great place to start. Alternatively, you've already got an idea, and you're wondering, man, what else is there I could use around this? Get a hold of Tracy. Get onto the National Library. Find those resources, and hopefully that helps. This has been another uh, quality episode of... Is this for credits? Don't go change it. <laughs> <laughs>